Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed the perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. And hello and welcome to From the Diamond here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I'm Grant McCauley, live from the Kia Studios on a Sunday as the Atlanta Braves just closed out a very good start to their 10-game homestand by taking two out of three from the Seattle Mariners over the weekend. And it concludes a string of 14 consecutive interleague games as the Braves were matched up against the American League for the last two weeks. And every single one of those teams that the Braves were facing, you better believe. And you can look at some of the records and then look at some of the things they did last year and the fact that we have a lot of baseball left to be played. Those are all teams with postseason aspirations, and the Braves had to match up against some of the better teams across that league. And I think they were able to hold their own. And outside of a bad weekend in Toronto last week, they were able to kind of steal back some of that momentum that they lost on the road trip. The two out of three against the Texas Rangers was a good start. But coming home, taking two out of three, and in the way that they did against the Seattle Mariners, particularly on Sunday, a great pitching performance from Jared Schuster. I'll talk more about that because goodness knows we're going to get into where the Atlanta Braves rotation is, the state of it, the options that they may have. Some options that may not be available to him right now in the form of a trade. All of those are things we're going to discuss. We've got a dark horse pitching prospect who made it to AAA this past week who could factor in this decision. we got a comeback story by the name of Michael Soroka that at some point could factor into this. And we saw again what Jared Schuster was able to do on Sunday. He is currently factoring into helping the Braves out in rotation with no Max Fried and with no Kyle Wright at the moment and for some time to come. You needed some guys to step up and do the kind of things that Jared Schuster has done because I think we can all agree the bullpen game is a very dicey proposition and not one that you want to find yourself doing three times in nine days, which is where the Braves found themselves when they had to throw another one on Saturday. We'll put all that over to the side for just a moment. As I remind you, as always, you can find From the Diamond here on 92.9 The Game on Sundays from 5 to 7. Appreciate you joining me as always. And if you have uh, listened a long time to the show, then you know it's available in podcast form. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find it on the Odyssey app. And if you need links to any of the ways to connect to the show, which includes on Twitter, where I'm at Grant McCauley, the show is at From the Diamond with an underscore. Over on Instagram, I'm at Grant McCauley. The show is at From the Diamond. And you can like me on Facebook as well, or like the show at least. You don't have to like me, but you can like the show. It's on Facebook, and it's all linked over at FromTheDiamond.com. So that concludes the pitch for all the ways to connect to the show. But let's give you the content that you come here for, Braves and Major League Baseball talk. And we got a lot of good stuff happening on the show. I'm going to chat with Michael Clare a little bit later. He's a writer for MLB.com, and I'm going to get into a really fascinating story that he wrote about a week ago. And it's one that I think I just never really thought about, and that's where in the world did the baseball cap come from? Like, who designed this? What was the purpose of it? What were the alternatives? I mean, how did baseball teams end up wearing baseball caps? And as a result of that, I mean, at least in some part, the – 
societal influence that the baseball cap has had on virtually every other sport and our own fashion. It's just kind of an interesting thing, and you may not have expected a little bit of fashion talk here on From the Diamond, but that's why I'm throwing it at you. It's like my change-up. Michael wrote a great article. I'm going to chat with him a little bit later. It was a lot of fun to you know, delve into the history of the baseball cap, and we're going to do it for you right here on the show today. I'm also going to talk with Dane Perry of CBS Sports. He uh, has a uh, an insight and a newsletter on the St. Louis Cardinals called Birdie Work, which I definitely appreciate. I'm, I'm shocked that nobody has done that for the Atlanta Falcons here. Maybe somebody has. I don't know. But that's his subscription newsletter, and he's had a lot to talk about for the St. Louis Cardinals this year, and unfortunately for him, at least until the last about week and a half, a lot of it has not been very good, but sometimes that drives you a little bit more clicks if you want some insight from the industry. But, uh, yeah, the St. Louis Cardinals, not off to the start that they wanted to be off on. The Braves obviously beat up on them up in St. Louis in the first week of the season, and things kind of went down even from there for that Cardinals club. But they are starting to show some signs of life, so we'll have Dane Perry on the show a little bit later to talk about that when we take our look around the big leagues where we'll get into some rules changes that uh, have somehow gone awry yet again. I'm sure you're surprised by that. That's all a little bit later in the show, but let's take a look at the week that was for the Atlanta Braves. I'd like to do that to lead off each and every show. So as you look at what Atlanta was able to do after the disappointment in Toronto, which we talked about on last week's show, the bullpen game on Sunday was a winnable game. The, the bullpen game prior to that on the Wednesday against Boston was a winnable game. The offense didn't show up. Last Sunday, the defense didn't show up, and unfortunately in both of those, Rysel Iglesias got roughed up. Now the bullpen game that Atlanta threw against the Seattle Mariners on Saturday – there were some defensive miscues. It did not help Michael Tonkin out in the middle of that one, but I think it all underscores what has been kind of the inherent risk, as I talked about on Twitter. Again, at Grant McCauley, if you want to get all those insights in real time, I'm happy to provide those for you each and every day. But the inherent risk of a bullpen game is that somebody or somebody's ain't going to have it on that day. And then your whole plan, your best laid plan, the one that you spent all that time putting together of, okay, we start with this guy, then if he can get us to here, we'll use this guy, and then this one. And then we'll mix and match with some of our higher leverage if we've got a lead later on. That is a great plan. And I'm sure that the Braves would like to see that go in that order each and every time. But unfortunately, in the middle innings yesterday, Michael Tonkin was the guy that, and and again, there were some defensive miscues in yesterday's contest that did not help him out at all. But that and a lack of offense, that compounded to turn into another loss in a bullpen game. And that, I think, has been kind of the story of the week, as it were, But in the midst of all of that, despite having to throw a bullpen game last weekend and having to throw another one this weekend as well, the Braves did take two out of three from the Texas Rangers, a very good club in Arlington, no less. And the Braves kind of got their road mojo back. Atlanta had been 15-3 and on the road before they rolled into Toronto, and the Braves got swept. Then they lost a game, obviously, against Texas, but did take two out of three. So the Braves had gone the first, I don't know, five, six weeks of the year, lost three games on the road. Then they lose four in one trip. Sometimes that's going to happen, but either way, Atlanta still has the best road record in baseball, at least one of them at this point, pending the action of this weekend, and you want to see them come home to Truist Park and start playing a little bit better. I can't really think of a better way than to take two out of three from a team like the Seattle Mariners, a club that has, again, as I mentioned earlier about all these American League teams, Atlanta's been facing an interleague play for the last 14 games. The postseason is their goal, and you could tell just from the way that these games were played. I mean, they were close, and they were played well, I thought. And the Mariners last year, I thought, was also one of the more intriguing matchups late in the season, especially. And the Braves, remember, they were on their roll last year when they went into Seattle and lost two out of three to the Mariners. And the Mariners clearly able to break their postseason drought. Didn't really have a whole lot of fun against the Houston Astros in that series. But either way, you want to get there. And they want to get back there again. A lot of parallels, I think, between these two teams in in some other ways. You had 
George Kirby that we got a good look at on Sunday. I thought he was kind of the Spencer Strider of the Mariners a year ago. He's backing that up with another good season. Interestingly enough, I don't know if ironic is the word. I don't know that there's anything ironic about it, but Michael Harris the second, and Julio Rodriguez were the rookies of the year last season. And both those guys are off to very slow starts this year. We know Harris ended up on the injured list for three weeks. Rodriguez is a little bit more curious. He just has not been able to put up the numbers thus far. But you're talking about an all-world talent type player. And the sophomore slump has been around a long time in Major League Baseball. It might be true in some other sports. But it's one thing to come up and establish yourself at the big league level, have that first good season. It's another thing to really get yourself established in the way that you are able to do it year after year after year because baseball is the constant game of adjustments. Speaking of which, hitters have to make those adjustments on a regular basis. And I talked to a Braves hitter that's been trying to do just that this year. You're going to hear from him later in the show. He is Austin Riley. I think that is probably one of the big questions about the Braves when you're kind of wondering when can some things get back to the way that they were before? When can some guys break through? Austin Riley, I think, has been at the top of that list. Matt Olson's been on that list a little bit. Marcelo Zuna owned the list for a while, but he's been able to break out and is having a great month of May. Uh, continued his hitting streak in the victory against Seattle on Sunday. That's good to see. Orlando Arcia, if you had any questions about his offense, he's shown you that he can be a contributor as well. But, you know, you do have this list that you, you kind of wonder about with, you know, when can you get Michael Harris going? What's it going to take to get Austin Riley kick-started there? Because he's in the middle of the order again. He was batting third on Sunday. He'd been hitting cleanup a good amount, but Sean Murphy was off on Sunday. At least they wanted to keep him out of the lineup. Uh, give that guy a day off every once in a while because he shouldered the load when Travis Darno was on the injured list. He was kind of an iron man behind the plate. He was also an uh, offensive force for the Braves in the middle of the order, which is a pretty big deal as well. Looking at some of the other things that the Braves need to get going offensively, though, Matt Olson has been up and down but had a great weekend against Seattle, a bunch of extra base hits, hitting home runs again. That's great to see. But Austin Riley, you got to get him going. So I asked Austin a lot about what the mindset was, who he's talking to, what he's working on, and how he is feeling as far as starting to show, at least in the Texas series and a couple times here in the Seattle series, some signs of life, signs of driving the ball, lifting the ball again. That's been a big thing for him. So I invite you to stick around and hear that a little bit later on in the show. Taking a look at the rest of this homestand, though, it is going to be a meat grinder for the Braves. I think that might be the polite way to put it. You took two out of three from Seattle. Congratulations. Now you get to try to do that against an L.A. Dodgers team that has been resurgent. Freddie Freeman's going to be rolling back into town. There should not be quite as many waterworks this time around. I don't think it'll be quite as emotional, though I'm sure he's looking forward to coming on back and showing the Braves what they're missing these days because he's off to a hot start this year. He's been extremely good in a Dodgers uniform. I don't think that really surprises anybody, but he's just one of the, I think, big stories for L.A., and we'll talk more about that series and get you previewed for it as we continue on from the Diamond. But, yeah, you get the Dodgers. Then you also get the Phillies, who now have Bryce Harper at their disposal. That's had them playing a little bit better. It's been a little bit up and down. They went on a winning streak. Then they got knocked around a little bit. They got in that tiff with the Colorado Rockies, where I believe Harper told them that they are not a good organization at all. Not sure that's the exact quote, but I'm just paraphrasing. But he's back, and he makes the Philadelphia Phillies a more dangerous lineup. Get Trey Turner to wake up a little bit, and they're a club that I think if Aaron Nola is able to get himself on track, and he was very good over the weekend as well, all of a sudden the Phillies could find themselves a little bit more than they did over the first month or so of the season. And the Marlins are playing better baseball this year too. I don't find that to be altogether shocking. I felt like they had the pitching to do that. The question was going to be offensively, could they find their way? Could they win some more of the close games that they weren't winning last year? 
And thus far, they have shown themselves to be a, a tough team, but they're having to do it right now without Jazz Chisholm. He's not available for him. He's on the injured list with turf toe, which is not something I've heard too often as far as a baseball injury, but it is one that comes across the radar during football season. Just not something I've heard as much in baseball, but they're without one of their more dynamic young players, and that's going to make it a little bit tougher for them. But for the Braves, the object is keep winning. They took the two out of three uh, from the Seattle Mariners over the weekend. They have one of the best records in the National League. The Dodgers are also up there, and that's going to be a showdown that's happening beginning on Monday for a three-game set at Truist Park. And then, of course, it's just handling your business in the NL East. Got a whole lot more to get to, though, on this week's edition of the show. We're going to go ahead and take that deep dive into everybody's favorite topic, the topic du jour for the Braves over the past well, week and a half. Bullpen games. What's wrong with them? Why don't we want to see them? How is there a better way to do it? And in all seriousness, what can the Braves do to kind of get themselves back on track, get the stability they need one through five in that starting rotation? I'll talk all about that. This is from the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley. This is Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Talking Braves and beyond. Baseball. With From the Diamond. And welcome back in. Grant McCauley here on From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Live from the Kia Studios on a Sunday as I am. From 5 to 7 each and every Sunday you can find me here on The Game. You can also find the podcast version of From the Diamond wherever you get your podcast and on the Odyssey app as always. So, uh, the week that was for the Atlanta Braves, that's how we open our show each and every time, and we have a lot to talk about on the pitching side for the Braves just based on how things are trending in the month of May. Uh, I don't know if you need a history lesson on what the last couple of weeks has been, but when you lose your ace, Max Freed, for a number of weeks, we don't have an exact timetable on Max, but shut down from throwing for three weeks, and he's going to test out that forearm, see how he's feeling, ramp up the throwing, then he's going to need a certain amount of rehab starts. So, I don't know, if you want to ballpark it, we're talking a month here, at the very least. I mean, that's where we're starting. For Kyle Wright, he's on the 60-day injured list with the second recurrence, or with a recurrence, of his shoulder inflammation that was an issue for him back in January when he got a cortisone shot prior to the season, prior to spring training started. He was a little bit behind. Then he came back, and he showed flashes of looking like the Kyle Wright from a year ago, but then it just didn't seem quite right. And, of course, the shoulder barking at him again landed him back on the injured list. So, I don't know if you need me to tell you, and if you're great with fractions, but when you lose two-fifths of your rotation and the two-fifths that you lose are the Cy Young runner-up from a year ago and a 21-game winner, the only 20-game winner in the big leagues last year, uh, that's going to be difficult to find a way to cover for. And no matter how good your farm system is, it's hard to call upon prospects that can step up and give you that level of production right out of the box. There are going to be some ups and downs, some lumps for some of these guys. We've already seen that from Jared Schuster who pitched extremely well on Sunday. I'll get a little bit more into that in a moment. Dylan Dodd has been kind of a mixed bag at the big league level. He's had trouble at the AAA level, for that matter. And, you know, there's just not a lot that you can pinpoint on other than young players having to make that adjustment, make that jump, and doing so a little bit ahead of schedule. And if we want to talk about ahead of schedule, we're going to get into A.J. Smith-Shaver in a little bit. And he would appear to be quite ahead of schedule after just a couple of starts in AA. He's already come up and made his AAA debut with Gwinnett. That happened this week as well. I mean, this is a kid that appears to have the Rockets strapped to his back. So we'll see what exactly is going to be going on with A.J. Smith-Shoffer and where does he factor into the Braves' plans. But before we get too far down the list of the arms that you're going to probably see as the Braves try to solve this issue, we just have to talk about the bullpen games. And a word that I kept hearing, or phrase that I kept hearing, and from Brian Snitker, no less, was 
sustainable, not sustainable. It was how I felt like he was kind of categorizing repeatedly doing these bullpen games. And if you're kind of wondering, like, why would they try this? I mean, they didn't win any of these. They went 0-3 in bullpen games. And I mentioned earlier as I started the show, you know, there was some bad defense in the one on Sunday. You lost in Toronto, plus your closer. You got to the ninth inning with the lead. Then he had a bad day. But this kind of underscores my point. You cannot count on six, maybe seven relievers to all have it on a particular night. You're definitely going to need your offense to have it. And in two of the three games that were started by the bullpen and, and were the responsibility of the bullpen, by and large, you didn't have the offense that you needed, I feel like, to compete and win those kinds of games. But that is baseball. You can score 12 runs one night be shut out the next night or close to it. These are the things that can happen in a long baseball season. And if you knew when you needed the 12 runs, well, of course, you'd schedule appropriately. Hey, we got a bullpen game. I think it's time to hit five two-run homers. Well, that's what they did for, I believe, Jared Schuster in his start out in Texas. That wasn't a bullpen game, but certainly didn't hurt to have five two-run homers to back you up. But that's just not the kind of thing that you can count on each and every day. So the bullpen games, three of them in nine days, that puts an incredible tax on Atlanta's relief court. And it's not just on that day, because then you have to play this game, this puzzle you have to put together of, all right, how far did we push this pitcher? All right, well, we want to stay away from him, and we need to stay away from this guy. And this one had to give us six, seven, eight, maybe nine outs, so three innings. Well, we're definitely staying away from him for at least three days. And then you have unavailable relievers, and you have things that crop up like Dylan Lee, who looked great in starting a bullpen game for Atlanta, then ending up on the injured list after the fact because his, I don't know if it was pushed too hard, but either way, I mean, you have to feel like that that taxed him more so than it would have in these one-inning outings. And by the way, Dylan Lee was also pretty busy for the Braves with 20 appearances already this season, an ERA right around three. Looked extremely good again in that bullpen game against the Boston Red Sox, but when it came time to go back to the normal relief role, he was not as effective in Texas and then woke up the next day and had some soreness that wasn't going away. So shoulder inflammation has landed him on the injured list. That doesn't help matters either. But as you look at the ways that the Braves can get through without Freed and without Wright, you can't be calling for a bullpen game every fifth day. That, to use the words, again, of Brian Snitker, not sustainable to keep doing that. And the reasons why, as I was alluding to earlier, that they were even able to try this out, because this is an unorthodox way to try to handle maybe two spots of your rotation. Of course, Jared Schuster kind of stepped in, so at least one of them you were having to figure out with a bullpen game. Well, they had some off days. And off days aren't really going to be a thing for the rest of the month of May as the Braves will now play three against the Dodgers, four against the Phillies, then fly out to Oakland and take on the A's on the West Coast. And so the off day that they had prior to the Mariners series on Thursday, that's the only thing that allowed them to even think about doing another bullpen game the second game against the Seattle Mariners. But these are not a thing that are long-term playing. I think we know that. So the questions then become, how do you solve this? You know, what exactly can the Braves do? Well, Jared Schuster's been one answer, and he was great on Sunday. Best start of his major league career. Congratulations to Jared Schuster on picking up his first major league win. That's a big thing. Career-high seven strikeouts, career-high six innings. Only allowed the one run, just in control. Looked extremely good. One run on one hit. It was a solo homer. Made one mistake, basically. And I think he can live with that across six innings, most certainly. And that backed up a start that was five innings of, I thought, pretty good baseball where he really just ran into a three-hitter you know, line against the Texas Rangers, and one of them was a two-run homer by Adolis Garcia. But otherwise, I liked the Jared Schuster that I saw come back from AAA Gwinnett, who was attacking the corners, who really seemed to be pitching with a plan and with a, more of a purpose, and perhaps to give him full credit, 
now had a little bit of experience under his belt, and that experience is a great teacher, and there's really no substitute for it. And perhaps, you know, the struggles that he had in his first two outings in the big leagues just kind of allowed him to see, okay, now I know a little bit more about the speed, a little bit more about, you know, how I want to do these things. You get to go plan, and, and as I've said many times on this show, in baseball and in life, failure sometimes is our greatest teacher. Again, there's just no substitute for experience. But I know a lot of people are thinking, all right, well, the Braves don't have enough pitching depth. And no, they don't at this point. And not the depth that they thought that they had to start the season because they lost Freed, they lost Wright. Ian Anderson had to have Tommy John surgery. That doesn't help matters at all. And then you're turning to a couple of minor leaguers at the start of the year to jump into this rotation and hopefully help you out. And you're still waiting on Michael Soroka, who I'll get to in a little while as well. But Alex Antopoulos appeared on this very radio station last week to talk to Dukes and Bell here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And the question that I think everybody, I've gotten it a lot, and I know that everyone's discussing it is, well, why can't they just go out there and make a trade? Force somebody to give you a great pitcher or a good pitcher or at least a serviceable pitcher to help you out through this time. And the simple matter is this is not the time of year that you're going to see trades happening. And if you look around baseball at the names that have been changing hands from team to team, being designated for assignment or put on waivers, whatever it may be, these are not the kind of names that sound like big-time solutions. So I want you to hear what Alex Antopoulos had to say when Carl and Mike were asking him a little bit about how exactly can you approach this on the trade front? I was asked this before. Everyone always, no matter whether it's offense, bullpen, rotation, you're staying engaged with teams. There's just not a lot out there in May. And I think the reason is even those teams that are rebuilding, that know that they're not going to be contending for the postseason, it's a tough sell for them to go into their clubhouse, their coaches, their manager, their fan base, and start getting rid of guys and trading guys in May. That doesn't mean it can't happen. But nine times out of ten, if you ask those guys, they'll tell you, look, for me to move early, you're going to have to be a real premium because it's, it's a tough sell early in, in the season to start to take away from the team. So, you know, we've made calls, no doubt about it. I've checked in. And for the majority of guys that we want to target and go after, it's like, look, we're not ready to do anything yet. We want to give it more time. And look, with the, with the one added playoff spot in each league, I think it's going to give everybody more incentive to try to stay the course and hold on to their guys. So, you know, it's not to say that we're not going to check in and try. Just know that realistically yeah. – um, it's very hard to make deals early. I mean, look, guys that get DFA'd and things like that, sure, those guys are always going to be in play. But, you know, guys that you're hoping are going to be impact and so on, realistically, that only comes in July. So for now, um, we're very likely to go in- internal, continue to keep lines in the water if things do present themselves. That's Braves General Manager Alex Anthopoulos on with Dukes and Bell this past week, talking about the trade possibilities or really the lack thereof this time of year in baseball season. May is just not the time that you see blockbuster trades going on. It's really not even the time that you see useful pieces of clubs changing hands because, as he just mentioned, as he laid out, and I can't say it any better than he did, you know, there is a little bit more incentive for some of these teams with the expanded playoffs. And then there's the fact that, you know, GMs, when they do make some of these deals, you know, they're going to have to go kind of explain to their manager or their team, all right, well, this is why we white flagged it in May. And even if you know, like, the reality of it is how tough that mountain is to climb, You'd like to feel that your team, that your organization, that your front office has a little bit of belief in the club to let things at least run their course long enough in the season so that you can make a little bit more of an educated decision. And a couple of the places that you might go to pick up a piece or two, in particular, I'm thinking about the Pittsburgh Pirates, they're not having a bad year. So they may be less inclined to start trading even a veteran like a Rich Hill at this point. They may not want to trade him. They certainly don't want to trade Mitch Keller, I don't think, because it looks like he's turned the corner. And then you just start talking about other names that just that you have clubs that aren't really interested in starting to take pieces off in the middle of May. It's just the practical reality of 
a GM's job is to try to make the club better. And, yeah, there are some guys that will get cut loose, like Madison Bumgarner. I know that's been a popular name. But I'm just here to tell you it's not 2015 anymore. And if you look at the last three years with the Arizona Diamondbacks, that just doesn't look like a solution. Yeah, he costs you next to nothing, but he may give you next to nothing because that's where he is in his career, and the numbers kind of bear that out. Maybe a change of scenery works. Maybe it clicks for just long enough until you get Max Free back. Maybe that's an answer in, in some way, shape, or form in somebody's book. I just don't think that that's worth the effort and the energy to go do that when you do have some internal options that could probably help you get through at about the same rate, if not better, in Jared Schuster and Dylan Dodd. And hopefully you have Michael Soroka back in this mix. And I know we have this discussion each and every week, and for good reason. I think the Braves are excited about the possibility of getting Soroka back in their rotation. But in that same interview with Dukes and Bell on 92.9 The Game earlier this week, you know there was discussion from Alex Antopoulos with the guys about, look, we want to bring him along in the right way for the player, not as a panic move and running up his schedule, you know, speeding it up, just to try to fill a hole for a couple of starts. That's not the strategy that you employ with a player that you've been trying to bring back for three years, I guess is my point. And I think that that's better to do right by the player in that position and try to use some of your other options, which does bring us to the A.J. Smith-Shawver portion of the conversation. And I think it's an interesting one. This is a kid 20 years old, was pitching in low A Augusta last year, had an ERA over five in his first full season in professional baseball. And let me just tell you, the minor league numbers don't tell you everything because if you've seen this kid, laid eyes on him, you know the arsenal that he has. And it's an extremely talented arm. So could the Braves maybe expedite for the purposes of helping out their rotation somebody that they feel like is at least equipped with all of this stuff to give them a look and see if that stuff can play at the big league level? This is a lot like the decision that they made with Spencer Strider late in 2021. And I don't have my years mixed up, mind you. Spencer Strider came up, and the idea was perhaps he could be a relief option in the postseason. Maybe we can take that big arm and utilize him in some way. That kind of opened the door for 2022 when the Braves were in the similar position where Spencer Strider didn't have a ton of starts under his belt in the minor leagues, but they felt like he's too good for us not to do something with him, so let's kind of bring him along in the bullpen try to keep him stretched out, and then eventually work his way into rotation, and they might. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that you should have Spencer Strider-level expectations for A.J. Smith-Shawver, but I am here to tell you that this is a very talented kid, and I'm a little bit more for outside-the-box thinking for guys who are healthy and may have the stuff that can play up, rather than taking the comeback story of someone like Michael Soroka, who is making mechanical adjustments, who is kind of knocking off the rust of almost two full years without pitching, I'm more so with giving the guy who's been healthy the opportunity and just taking the time that's necessary for Soroka. And that might mean that A.J. Smith-Shawver gets one or two starts, and then it's back to the minor leagues to figure a few things out. He might be great and never leave again. I don't know. We'll find out maybe. But for Michael Soroka, I just feel like there is a, needs to be a bigger purpose than just saying, all right, well, we need somebody, anybody. I hate losing a bullpen game, so let's just come up and lose this way. Well, Nobody wants to lose, <laughs> put it to you that way. And it doesn't do any good whatsoever to have Michael Soroka potentially up here before it's time for him to be and suffer some kind of setbacks, whether that's mentally, physically, whatever the case may be. I mean, this is mentally one of the toughest kids you're ever going to meet. I can tell you that from talking to him and knowing him for quite some time and covering him for a while. If he wasn't mentally tough, and I know he said this last year, he wouldn't still be trying to make this comeback. He would have already tapped out long ago. So be that as it may, there's a lot to talk about when it comes to the Braves rotation. And that, I think, was a, a pretty good summation of where they have been uh, over the past week or so with all those bullpen games. Nobody wants to see those, and I think the Braves would like to move away from them 
in very good time in the coming week. Well, coming up, we are going to have, I think, one of the more fun discussions. It's going to be about the history of the baseball cap. Where did this thing come from? I'll tell you all about it. In fact, Michael Clare of MLB.com will help me out. We'll do it next right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I love baseball. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond. And welcome back into From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we embark on our trip around the big leagues. I want to once again jump in my way back machine and take a look back at one of the most important inventions that the sport has ever seen, and that is the baseball cap. To help me do that, I want to welcome in Michael Clare of MLB.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Michael S. Clare because he delved into the history of the baseball cap like nothing I've ever seen before. Michael, really appreciate you making some time to join me here on From the Diamond. You know, we focus a lot on the Atlanta Braves, and for good reason. It's a good baseball club. We're right here in Atlanta, but I love going back and looking at the history of this great game. And you found a rabbit hole that I think might be one of the most exciting. You wrote this article for MLB.com, the history of the baseball cap. Tell me a little bit about this and how much fun was it to find out where exactly this fashion statement came from? Yeah, so... I think it would shock everyone to learn how long I've been working on this piece and like how many hours and hours of like interviews and stuff I did. When it comes to things like this, there seems to be like a a never ending well of things we don't know. But, you know, the story kind of came from I was kicking around some things and I love baseball hats. I wear them every day. And, you know, if you were to ask me, I would have been like, oh, you know, Neanderthals had baseball hats. Like they've just always (laughs) they've always been there. And yeah, learning that. The first quote-unquote baseball hat was actually a chip straw hat. kind of blew my mind. And it wasn't even done by choice. It wasn't like, we think this is the best hat. It was literally just done by the New York Knickerbockers, the first official amateur club. It was just them deciding we need something that is a uniform so that we know we are the in-group, we are the team, we are the baseball players. And that meant a 360-degree angle chip straw hat which maybe if the world develops a little differently, instead of ball caps, we're all wearing giant straw hats to the ballpark and we can't see over anybody else's head. Yeah, I want to get back to straw hats. We're not going to stray too far from that. But as you talk about going back in baseball history, ending up in the 1840s to trace some of uniform origins or specifically the headwear of baseball's first official club, as you mentioned, let's start with this. How do you gather information on fashion choices from a century and a half ago? <laughs> That's a great question. And that is where we are standing on the shoulders of giants at the Hall of Fame. You know, they have this amazing database. It's called Dress to the Nines. Mm-hmm. It has all of the, you know, major league yeah. uniform information. It has photos and advertising pages from Spalding. So that's the first starting point. Then there's this amazing site called Threads of Our Game that specifically focuses on uniforms pre 1900. Okay. So. And this is where, like, it is just unbelievable because they have, you know, drawings, colored drawings, because what they do is they look at the old newspaper clippings or photos that are gray and you can barely see them. And they go, okay, in this photo, you can kind of see what appears to be a wing. And we imagine. So in, in 1894, the Orioles are the first team to wear what is a sort of logo that's not a letter, a symbol. They wear a wing. And it's only for the Temple Cup series, a precursor to the World Series. And the way they get this information is like one or two photos where you see it because 
during the rest of the season, they didn't wear that. Right. It's one or two photos and they have to extrapolate all this data. So wow. really you start with these amazing people who have spent so much time. If you look threads of our game even has like a giant list of contributors where when they mm-hmm. see something, they send it in. There is this amazing baseball researcher community that exists that loves nothing more than, than diving into, you know, old papers and documents and, so that's kind of where it starts. And then knock on wood, Peck and Snyder is the first company to make what we would consider the the precursor to the modern hat, but mm-hmm. it's called the the Brooklyn style ball cap. Well, only a couple of years ago, uh, Peck and Snyder back in the day got bought out by Spalding. So they kind of disappeared. Nobody really thinks of them. They're just a name. A company bought out the name to bring it back. It's an English company kind of mm-hmm. doing what Ebbets Field Flannels is doing, yeah. but uh, overseas. And fortunately for them and for us, because they bought it out before that they had gone through archives and they had found catalog pages and we get information from them where if I had tried to do the story five years ago, I don't know where I find that information. Maybe that's not out there that, okay. you know, the guys at Peck and Snyder had already done this work before they, you know, relaunched the brand. So it's a lot of old newspaper articles. I imagine it's a lot of going to rummage sales and just mm-hmm. hoping for the best. I wouldn't be shocked if in a couple of years we do have to update the story because the only piece of information that comes from the chip straw hats is a book that came out years later that talks about having seen the notes from that first meeting. So we don't have the first source information. We have secondhand reporting that we're just like, well, why would he lie about this? Right. And typically that's a good place to at least start. But as you mentioned this, and we're talking to Michael Clare of MLB.com here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. He joins me on the WadeFord.com hotline. But as we trace this thing back, and you mentioned a few different company names, how do we trace or credit the design of the baseball cap as we begin to know it? And this is where I kind of guess a circle back to straw caps because it's really hard to imagine King Griffey Jr. in a straw hat as his iconic yes. look. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this this is where baseball being big and growing, even in the 1860s, is really important because we call the sort of first baseball cap. Now, Tom Schieber at the Hall of Fame was quick to say, caps existed, but we call them baseball caps because we're American. That's where it kind of really took off. And that's, yeah. but, you know, the cap existed, It was, but it was the Brooklyn Excelsiors that were the first team to wear what we kind of consider a ball cap. It, the top of the cap looked a little different. The brim was smaller. The brim was a lot softer. The inside had leather, and they were made out of merino wool. But it's the fact that these things are popular, and baseball is growing. And so we can point to the fact that, oh, it's the Brooklyn Excelsiors that did this, and now other teams are lining up and following. The New York Knickerbockers change and start wearing that hat. And then, as we see through, you know, Spalding advertising catalogs or Peck and Snyder catalogs, there are other options of hats, but the there's one, the Brooklyn-style cap, that just gets more and more popular and is clearly the one that they are pushing to sell. Yeah. And it's also the one being sold. And so we know it came from Brooklyn and then spread. Part of it is probably function. Part of it's probably style. And the other part is price. All these early advertisements, they're not saying bespoke artisan hats. They're saying cheap muslin, cheap (laughs) wool, cheap flannel. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was 
the best design, I think, at the lowest price possible. That's always going to play a part, I would imagine, in the evolution of just about anything that's made for large-scale public consumption. And I, I learned so much about the ball cap in this article, more than I ever imagined. But finding out that the Braves, then in Boston, were the first team to put a monogram letter slash logo on the cap was a very nice touch. There's another thing that many, if not most, would have thought is always part of the cap, but somebody had to start that trend as well. So it's interesting to see that the Braves were kind of at the forefront of that in their own way. Yeah, because you think about it now. The hat is a billboard. It's a phrase that the people at New Era use. It's Tom Schiebert Hall of Fame used. Mm-hmm. It is both the perfect branding tool, marketing tool, advertising tool. It's just one that we all love to do. You know, I'm wearing a, a Red Sox hat right now, and I'm walking around advertising the Red Sox right. for people. But because we're talking about price and time, there was no, you know, especially for these style of hats, there was no automated systems that could just do this. So most of the early hats, it's colors and stripes. That's kind of what differentiated one team from another. And it's teams that had money. There's also there's no fan market for these. The fan market doesn't exist really until the 1980s. So hats are around and are popular for over 100 years, but they don't really become something you know me or you can just go out to a store and buy until the 1980s but you know teams with money and that kind of had an idea this is how we can make ourselves stand out from the crowd is by stitching our letters on there and a lot of the early ones you know i I think those braves ones are actually stitched on but i'm not 100 percent positive i haven't seen them but most of them if they had a logo or something it's a piece of felt that then is just sewn in because Mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to cut out a piece of felt than do all the stitching necessary to get that in there. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. And I know you brought up Ebbetsfield flannels a little bit earlier. I think it's a really cool thing that they have done to go back and get a lot of these designs, beginning with mostly amateur leagues and now growing into the major league branding that they're doing. It's just very fun to see the history kind of come to life in the recreations that they're doing, especially with such detail. And, you know, we've still got decades to cover here in our conversation. I can't recommend enough. Anybody listening, check out History of the Baseball Cap, the article over at MLB.com, so that you can actually see this evolution that we're talking about. You mentioned that clubs were kind of slow to bring to market their baseball caps in, in our lifetime. I grew up in the 80s, so baseball caps have always been around for me. But I guess prior to that, it really wasn't a big thing. So tell me a little bit about, I guess, the different companies that produced caps over the years, how we ended up with New Era, and I guess maybe what changes New Era has made since taking over back in 1993. Yeah, so it's funny. Again, I grew up mostly in the 90s. I remember in 1994 begging my parents for a New Era hat. I wanted what the pros wore. I wanted the Major League logo on the back. But we had to go to a specialty sports equipment store Mm -hmm. because it was the only place near my town that would sell these things. And it's because it's a sports equipment store, but also the owner cared about these things. So we shipped them in. Early on in baseball, it's just local companies. It is local haberdashers, and every team had their own supplier. New Era is founded in in 1920, and they're just a normal hat company. They're making some ball caps, but they're making you know a variety of hat styles. It's, it's the 1930s. Their market is going down. Earhart Cook is the is the founder of the company. His son Harold takes over in the 30s, and he sees baseball as growing, and he sees baseball as a great market. So he takes a version of the Brooklyn style cap, and they're in Buffalo. He goes to Cleveland, uh, that's the closest team, and he pitches them on the hat. We don't know what exactly he said. Is is it the quality that he can offer them? Is it the speed? Is it the price? That we don't know. But he makes that sale. 
And what New Era said to me when I talked to them is the big thing that, you know, they say in the office is that once they got a team, they never lost a team. Yeah. So 1934 is the first, uh, I believe it's 1934. I don't have it in front of me right now, um, is the first New Era Major League cap. They slowly start adding teams, you know, Yankees, Dodgers. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what you can kind of know is I'm wearing an older style hat. Yep. But there's no structure in it. So it kind of lays flat against my head and stares up at the ceiling. 1947, that's when they're like, this is a billboard. They put, uh, you know, buckram material, some hard material to give it that structure. Yeah, make make the logo stand up. Uh, St. Louis Browns are the first team to get that hat. Wow. That's the first 5950, the official first 5950, which is what Major League players have worn. It's the official Major League hat since 1993. In terms of its structure, it's barely changed since 1947. The silhouette is largely the same. The sizing is largely the same. The look, I can't think of many popular fashion things that haven't changed since 1947. So. Yeah, it's a huge moment in fashion right there. It certainly is. And I know as New Era brought this and got the full-on MLB, I guess, licensing or deal to be the official provider, the official hat of Major League Baseball, for lack of a better term, I know that they've changed some of the things about the materials of the hat because folks may not realize this. I know it's always something that generates a, wow, really, they wore those? Hats used to be wool. Uniforms used to be wool. I can't imagine running around in that in the middle of July in basically any market that plays Major League Baseball. Maybe it came in handy when it got a little colder if you're playing in October, which you always want to be a part of that. But I guess the transition from the materials is really the thing that would probably set apart the evolution of the hat, at least in our lifetimes. So 1947, Browns have the first hat. 1954 is the first year that the 5950 is, quote unquote, officially released. That hat, other than very minor cosmetic changes, is the same until 2007. And that's when they swapped out wool for sort of this polyester performance blend. That's also when they take the underbill of a hat, which like in cap culture is like a huge thing. It originally was green. Yep. And that's because studies said that was best at reflecting light and keeping light out of your eyes. And then another study came out later and it was gray. So the underbill changed to gray. And in 2007, the study said, actually, it's black that is best at blocking the sun. So in 2007, they changed from wool to a polyester. That's when New Era says we are making a performance hat, something that is actually to help players on the field. And that's also when it switches to a black underbill. And that's it. That's the biggest change in basically 70 years is that. And and that basically brings us to today. Well, it is an incredible, I think, journey where it took a while to find something that worked. And then they found something that worked. And I guess they went with the old phrase, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Maybe you can make those minor cosmetic changes as needed. But otherwise, it's a pretty timeless and classic design. And we've been seeing it for our entire lifetimes. And I would imagine for quite a few lifetimes to come if baseball is going to stick around, which I have a feeling that it will. Michael Clare of MLB.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Michael S. Clare. I really appreciate you joining me. History of the baseball cap. Can't encourage you enough. If you're listening out there, check out that article on MLB.com. Michael, thanks so much for all your time. Really enjoyed this piece and look forward to chatting with you again soon. Oh, absolutely. Grant, thank you so much. Uh, anytime you want to talk about hats or uniform minutia, uh, I'm always down. So that is a look through baseball history at one of the most important parts of any uniform in any sport, the baseball cap. When we come back, we will continue our trip around the big leagues with some of the biggest stories from the week that was across Major League Baseball. And we'll do it next right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. 
back to Grant McCauley for more From the Diamond. Welcome back to From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we wrap things up here on a Sunday, closing out a week for the Atlanta Braves and, of course, looking ahead to what is to come. But as I always like to do to start Hour 2, it's time to take our look around the big leagues. And there were a lot of interesting things happening this week. And, of course, I've talked a lot on this show about the new rules across baseball, uh, what they mean, the applications of them, how guys are adjusting to them. I talked a lot about that last week with a handful of Braves players themselves. You heard from Charlie Morton on this show, Kirby Yates. I also talked to Ronald Acuna Jr. I talked to Michael Harris. I mean, everybody is making their adjustments to what is the new normal for Major League Baseball. But every once in a while, we still see one of those kind of strange what are we doing here? Is this really how Major League Baseball wants it to be? Of course, I think the first one of those we got way back in spring training with a pitch violation called strike three in the Braves Grapefruit League opener. But as we know, that game doesn't count, so I'm not too upset about that. I don't think too many people across baseball were. It just went to serve notice that no matter the time or no matter the situation, umpires are going to be calling these violations. Now, putting that aside and getting into the regular season, we saw one that I talked about on the show last month. Cody Bellinger went back to Los Angeles with the Cubs. He got a standing ovation at Dodger Stadium, and as he stepped out to acknowledge the crowd, he also got a strike violation for not being in the box, ready alert to the pitcher with eight seconds to go. That, again, I think is just one of those things that you look at and you say, is that really how Major League Baseball wants it to be? I have a hard time believing that it is. I just don't think that some of these things were even thought about when the rules were put in place. But we saw something pretty bizarre on Saturday down in Tampa Bay. That's where the Brewers were visiting the Rays. Everything was going along as a normal baseball game into the eighth inning. That's when Ryan Thompson, the Rays reliever, was on the mound, and Jesse Winker was going to step into the box to face him. The pitch clock was ticking. Thompson was not on the mound. Winker was paying very close attention to what Thompson was doing and was just waiting on his counterpart to climb onto the mound so that he could then get into the batter's box, and you would assume that the pitch clock would start going. Well, unfortunately for everyone involved, or I guess for Winker, this was not how things were being seen from the pitch clock side of things and the umpiring side of things. Take a listen to this absolutely bizarre turn of events. So Thompson's not even on the rubber, so how can you even start the clock at that point? And they have given a strike to Jesse Winker, but the pitcher is not even in a position to deliver a pitch. Jesse Winker and now the home plate umpire getting into it. Great counsel stepping in between the two. So they got the umpires huddled up. They stuck with that strike call. Jesse Winker fouled off the next pitch, and then, of course, here's the result. And strike three call, fastball in the outer part of the plate. And Winker might not be long for this game. Yep. I think that's left over from the beginning part of the at-bat. And that's audio courtesy of Bally Sports Wisconsin. And as you heard, I mean... That does not sound like the spirit of the rule, but I've come to terms with the fact that maybe there is no spirit behind this rule. It just does not seem to discriminate. It does not seem to make any exceptions. It just seems to be there doing whatever it's going to do, and everybody's just going to have to adjust to it. As we're learning, that's how it's going to be. No one's disputing that, but I feel like there should be some certain common sense scenarios where... Maybe the pitch clock is not running. But then again, are you trying to keep the pitch clock running at all times, regardless of what the pitcher's doing, the batter's responsibility is to be in the box? That would seem to be what the Jesse Winker situation tells me is what Major League Baseball wants here. 
It didn't seem to play out in a normal fashion. I can understand why a player would be very upset about getting a strike called on him in that scenario, but it is what it is, and I guess we're just going to have to get used to it or make the adjustment and have the batter in the box at all times. Don't let him step out except for his one timeout, and it doesn't really matter what the pitcher or the catcher or anybody else on the field is doing. That seems to be the way it is. Now, when the Braves left Toronto after the weekend sweep, we thought we wouldn't be talking about the Blue Jays maybe anytime soon, or at least not in depth here on the show, but... As we are taking our look around the big leagues, we had to put our eyes, any and all pun intended, back on Toronto because the Yankees rolled into town and Aaron Judge became the center of, I don't know whether to call it a controversy, but I've seen it referred to as eye gate. On Monday, Judge hit a home run. That in and of itself is not new. That's like sky is blue, water's wet, so on and so forth. That home run, though, was preceded by a glance toward the Yankees' dugout before refocusing on the pitcher, Jay Jackson, who was briefly a Brave last year, and then Judge hit the home run. Now, I can spare you a lot of this because we'd spend probably the rest of the segment talking about it, but Jay Jackson was tipping pitches. He admitted as much after getting optioned to the minor leagues afterwards, but in the heat of the moment, the immediate suspicion was on the Toronto side, is Judge or are the Yankees utilizing some elaborate sign stealing and then signaling the pitches to the hitter? In the pitchcom era, I don't think that that's really going to be as common. I mean, it's funny that the technology that you're putting in place is going to kind of subvert the technology that was subverting the way that the game was played for so long. I would just think maybe just get rid of all the digital stuff altogether and you'd solve your own problem. But that is clearly not the way that we're going in 2023 and beyond. So Judge hits his home run. Jay Jackson at first said he wasn't tipping pitches, then he said he was. As for Judge, his explanation to the Yankee press after the game, that left a lot of people, shall I say, with their eyebrows raised. Take a listen. Yeah, it was kind of a lot of chirping from our our dugout, which I really didn't like in the situation where it's a 6 nothing game. And I know Booney got tossed. Like, I was trying to save Booney by calling timeout. Like, hey, hold up here. Like, let me... Let me work here. Now, all of this played out in, in a very back-and-forth fashion. There was a lot of needling from the Toronto side to the New York side. A lot of tit-for-tat, as the old saying goes. And then Judge, on Wednesday, decided to kind of up the ante or at least have a wink and a nod. And I promise I'm going to stop doing these eye puns in a moment. But Judge's celebration was to close his eyes as he looked toward the Toronto dugout to make sure that they knew that he wasn't doing anything illicit in the way that he was picking up the baseball and hitting the baseball. There wasn't a big sign-stealing thing to go on. It just happened to be much ado about nothing. And if you've watched baseball for a very, very long time, then you don't need me to explain what the Houston Astros did with the electronic sign-stealing. That has no place in the game. Sign-stealing the old-fashioned way, which means you figure out some way to know either what the indicator was for the catchers, which again is going to be nullified by a pitch comm for the majority of pitchers. You just don't see the old-fashioned signals in use on a regular basis anymore. Or you figure out what a pitcher does that gives you a little bit of a tell before he throws a certain type of pitch. Those things have been part of the game forever. They should maintain a place as part of the game into the future. That's gamesmanship. And I don't think anybody really has a problem with that. The judge thing, though, it looked odd. On, on the surface level, it certainly did. But there didn't seem to be a lot of substance to it beyond that. But it gave us one of, again, the great controversies that isn't really a controversy. And I guess a great name for one with Eyegate in Toronto as Aaron Judge homered against the Blue Jays. And by the way, Aaron Judge... He might have his eyes set on 62 or more home runs here in 2023. He just set the American League record last year. 
But if you take a look, again, I'm not trying to do these. I'm just kind of walking right into them. Judge has 13 homers in his 38 games played so far this year. He has certainly got a chance to surpass 50 for the third time in his career and perhaps get over the 60 plateau if he maintains his health through the course of the season. And he could set his sights, again, so sorry, on the American League MVP award. As we continue our trip around the big leagues here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, it's From the Diamond with Grant McCauley live from the Kia Studios as always here on a Sunday evening. Let's focus for a minute on the club that is coming in to see the Atlanta Braves as his 10-game homestand continues. That, of course, is the Los Angeles Dodgers. Now, they have former MVP Mookie Betts doing quite a few things for them this year beyond simply being a potential gold glove right fielder. Mookie Betts, who had time in the minor leagues and early in his big league career as an infielder, well, he is taken back to his roots a bit. He's played some second base. He's also played some shortstop. Eight starts at second, five starts at shortstop. This is just not something that you would have expected. While he has gone back to second base a handful of times each of the last two seasons, shortstop is a whole different kind of animal. But with injuries and consistency and what every club deals with, I guess, a little bit of attrition all thrown in there, the Dodgers have not really had the solution they wanted to at shortstop since Trey Turner left as a free agent over the offseason. Being ever the consummate pro and teammate, Mookie Betts was happy to step into that role and has done, I would say, pretty well for himself. Now, he does have a couple of errors, but if you've watched Mookie Betts play, and unfortunately for the Braves, they had to watch him play at his absolute you know, apex of skills in the 2020 postseason in the NLCS, where he was all over the place in right field, showing you that he should probably play there just about every day. But his athleticism would tell you he doesn't have to play there each and every day. But he talked with Ken Rosenthal of Fox Sports about what exactly he loves so much about playing shortstop in the big leagues for the Dodgers after not having played shortstop in the big leagues in his life prior to this year. It's just less running. I mean, just less steps. You know, you go two or three steps to your right for a ground ball, um, throw to first versus going, you know, 20 steps to your right or left, whichever side to catch a pop-up. It's just, I mean, we're in the third base dugout. It just, over time, I know it seems like I'm lazy or whatever, which, if that's what you want to call me, whatever. But uh, it's just less steps. It's just less steps. So less steps is easier on my body. Yeah, I think the last thing that people will be calling Mookie Betts is lazy. And for the Dodgers, they needed all the help that they could get. You look at this club year after year, you expect them to be right in the heart of everything that's happening in the National League West. You expect them to be toward the top of the standings, because that's typically where you can find the Dodgers. Now, Mookie Betts is central to everything that they do. We've seen that for a number of years. That's why they gave him the big contract. And the Dodgers once again find themselves in first place as they've been surging in the standings. And Mookie Betts is putting together another fine season. He's OPSing nearly 900. He's scoring a bunch of runs. He's in double digits and home runs already this year. After hitting 35 last year to set a new career high, it would seem like that Mookie's just doing all the things that he normally does. I will say this, and this has nothing to do with him playing shortstop, though. It's a little strange to see Mookie Betts through 45 games coming into Sunday, exactly two attempted steals. So as he talked about the mileage that he's saving from the third base dugout to shortstop and back and not having to go out to right field, I guess maybe I'm just a little surprised that with the new rules, the limited pickoffs, the bigger bases, all the things, the, the same stuff that we talk about as reasons why Ronald Acuna Jr. is running more having more success, whatever you want to chalk it up to. Mookie Betts is a guy that has stolen double-digit bases every single year of his career, dating back to 2015, his first full season. He has just one stolen base in two attempts so far on the season coming into Sunday. That just a little bit surprising. 
However, the Dodgers, not a whole lot surprising about the success that they're having this year. You know, they started off a little bit slow, but you've got Freddie Freeman in the heart of that order, putting up another Freddie Freeman-style season, hitting well over 300. And speaking of Freddie Freeman in 300, he had himself a pretty nice little milestone earlier this week. Freeman tripled his last time, still sitting on 299 career homers. Freeman lifts it in the air to center field. Newbar's going back. He's at the track. He's at the wall. And 300 is a grand slam! Freddie Freeman joins the 300 home run club in grand style. That's Joe Davis on the call of Spectrum Sportsnet out in Los Angeles for Freddie Freeman, his 300th career home run, a grand slam. And after how long it took him to finally hit a grand slam in his time with the Braves, it's kind of ironic and pretty cool to see him reach that milestone, as Joe said, in grand fashion. Congrats to Freddie on his 300th career home run. That happened this week. We'll see him this week at Truist Park. I would imagine, and talking with a few media people around the ballpark this week in the lead-up to this series or this weekend, nobody's really expecting the same emotional impact that the homecoming to Truist Park had for Freddie Freeman last year. But once all those tears dried and everything got refocused on his time in a Dodgers uniform last year, he just went out and put up the kind of Freddie Freeman seasons that we've been accustomed to seeing. He just had to do it in a new uniform, a new place, and it would appear that here in 2023, in his second year in Dodger Blue, that he's just picking up right where he left off, doing all the things you expect Freddie Freeman to do, a near 400 on base, OPSing about 950. He's going to get his homers. He's going to get his doubles. He's going to get his RBIs, his runs scored. He's just about as consistent as it gets. So that's a look at some of the big stories going on across the world of baseball this week. When we come back, though, we're going to take a closer look at a team that got off to a dreadful start but still has postseason aspirations. I'm going to talk to Dane Perry of CBS Sports about the St. Louis Cardinals, what's gone wrong, what's going on behind the plate, and what do they need to do to get back on track. That comes your way next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, live from the Kia Studios on a Sunday evening as we wrap up a look at the week that was across Major League Baseball, and we like to check in with some of the other teams and some of the other big stories that are happening around the game as we take our look around the big leagues. Uh, One team that's been generating a lot of headlines and, and many that they would not really care for so far in the 2023 season is the St. Louis Cardinals. They were off to a terrible start, buried in the standings in the Central, starting to dig their way out of that. But there's been injury, there's been inconsistency, there's been a little bit of controversy, there's been a little bit of everything. And to help me make sense of all of it, I want to welcome in Dane Perry of CBS Sports. You can also subscribe to his newsletter. It's called Birdie Work. It covers the St. Louis Cardinals. He joins me right now on the wadeford.com hotline to talk about, well, you guessed it, the St. Louis Cardinals. It's been an interesting year, Dane, I would say, in a lot of different ways for this Cardinals club. And I would say... Uh, probably a season that started unlike any other in recent memory. Yeah, that's it, man. 10 and 24 start to the season. Uh, they, you know, all but buried themselves there. And as great as the recent run has been and as great as the vibes are right now on the Cardinals, it's easy to forget that they're still, I think, seven games under 500 right now. That starts the season historically awful for the franchise, and uh, they're still feeling the effects of it. And it'll, you know, it'll affect the rest of the season, no doubt about it. Yeah, and when you get off to a slow start like that, it can be very difficult to dig your way out. The Braves kind of did it last year, both by virtue of not playing up to their capability, I think, but also the Mets were red hot, and that was kind of a interesting turn of tail, I guess, in the Central to see the Pirates jump off to such a hot start. They have faded back to the pack. The Brewers, of course, are still in it. The Cubs are a little bit more improved than they were a year ago, clearly. 
it's going to be, I think, a, a battle with a lot of time left in the National League Central to sort these things out. But on the field, as the Cardinals, you mentioned at this start, they sunk to 10 games out of first place a couple of weeks ago. They were 14 games under 500. They have started to right this ship, but I kind of want to start with maybe some of the reasons why behind this bad start. I know injuries and inconsistency are always going to play a role when a team starts out like this. Yeah, that was certainly part of it. And there was a lot of bad luck involved. Uh, I mean, you know, if you look at their run differential and some things below that, they should have had a better record than that to start the season. But the record is what the record is. And that deficit is, has defined their season to date so far. You know, they have, I think, potentially one of the best offenses in the National League. But the rotation is going to be a concern all yeah. season, particularly with the age and injury risks in there. And that was certainly part of it early in the season. Yeah, you alluded to the rotation, which I want to get to in a moment, but I was looking at this offense, and I see Paul Goldschmidt's off to a solid start. Nolan Gorman has really stepped up this year. Nolan Arenado's starting to, I think, put some stuff together. And we're all getting to know Lars Newtbar, who's one of the great names in all of baseball. He's also a pretty good player. But when I sized up this group, it didn't seem like that was the problem at all, though the outfield production probably a little bit less than what St. Louis is looking for now. Yeah, I you know, Newtbar out there, I think, is a real offensive threat, but, you know, there's a platoon situation left for most of the year, particularly after Jordan Walker got sent down. Dylan Carlson has claimed the center field job pretty much, but he's more of a glove first guy right now who can hit lefties. It remains to be seen whether he's going to develop into a threat against right-handed pitching. He's a switch hitter, but very dominant against lefties and not against righties. So yeah, there are some offensive questions out there in the outfields. They need some clarity. And I think consistent playing time for that outfield will help. And they've kind of gotten that with the Tyler O'Neill injury and that sort of thing. So the outfield is a bit of a question offensively outside of the nude bar. Chatting with Dane Perry of CBS Sports. He also has the subscription newsletter Birdie Work that covers the St. Louis Cardinals. He's chatting with me about that Cardinals club right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Uh, one of the big acquisitions of the course of the offseason was Wilson Contreras. It also was kind of a seismic shift, I guess, for the Cardinals and all of the continuity they have behind the plate with so many years of Yadier Molina. Contreras signed that big five-year, $87.5 million deal, but he ended up being the source of some, I don't know if controversy is the word, but he was certainly at the center of a lot of discussions. It was, he's not going to catch, maybe he'll play the outfield was reported, then he's not going to do that, but maybe he's going to DH. And then all of a sudden, he's back behind the plate rather quickly. So could you walk me through a little bit of the saga of what exactly has been going on with Wilson Contreras in his first six or seven weeks in a Cardinals uniform? Just a completely bizarre situation. I thought it was grossly mishandled by the front office coming out and grandly announcing that Wilson Contreras, you know, the catcher you signed to replace Yadier Merlina at pretty substantial expense, uh -huh. was no longer going to be the catcher. And instead, they're going to put Andrew Kisner back there, who is a decent enough defender, but can't really hit. Just completely bizarre. And it reflects poorly on the front office's planning and strategizing in my mind. It also reflects poorly on the pitching staff who just can't get over the idea that Yadier Molina is no longer their catcher and mm. you know they can't be bottle fed by him any longer. It was really an ugly situation and I thought Contreras handled it really well. He kind of wore it and didn't whine about it, even though he would be justified in doing so. And, you know, it appears they did make some adjustments during that down period when he was DHing in, in terms of how he receives the ball. So maybe there's something to that. And, uh, you know, maybe he's, uh, his rapport with the pitching staff will improve going forward. It looks good so far since he's returned. But again, just a really ugly situation that was a bad distraction at a time when they didn't need it. And I just thought it was mishandled 
you know, all the way up to the top. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I know this pitching staff, you mentioned that they had to have a comfortability with Yadier Molina because that was kind of what he was known for was his ability to handle the staff, to receive the ball, all of those things. The Cardinals, though, they need the pitching staff to get right. Kind of, I felt central to this story was Jack Flaherty. He's battled to stay on the mound in recent years. He hasn't recaptured that 2019 form. He seemed very frustrated to get some questions regarding his use of his velocity, kind of fluctuating in the midst of starts. Uh, what are you seeing with Flaherty? What's your read on that? And do you feel like he has the potential to kind of turn a corner and recapture some of what made him one of the better right-handed pitchers in baseball not that long ago? I think there's a potential to get closer to that. I'm not sure after all the shoulder problems he's had that he's getting back to 2019. He looked really dominant his last start out, easily his best start of the season. So we'll have to see if he builds upon that. Uh, and Contreras was catching him, which is notable mm -hmm. since Flaherty was one of the ones who kind of whined publicly about pitch selection and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, the velocity needs to be playable. It needs to be approaching the mid-90s. He's not a guy who's going to throw high 90s anymore. It never did, really. So he needs to get that up out of the 80s, which it dips down to every now and then. Mm. Uh, show better command. He depends on late movement, and it's easy for that to go awry. But he looks really good in his last start out and needs to stay healthy because the Cardinals just lack depth in the rotation. But he also needs to be as effective as he was last time out. My doubts as to whether both of those things are going to happen over the long term. And that's understandable just based on the recent track record. And it's not just Flaherty, though. As you talked about this rotation, there are a lot of high ERAs, some tough times to go around with everybody in the starting five. And a few of these bullpen arms as well. I know that changed from Yadier Molina to whoever was going to be an adjustment as we touched on. But was there any one overriding factor that you feel like led to the pitching staff struggles? Or was it really just tied back to the fact that change came and maybe this pitching staff was not quite ready for that? I mean, it kind of goes back to what the Cardinals' issue has been coming into the season. There's a lack of big velocity and swing and miss in that rotation. They did nothing to address those weaknesses. The rotation is shot through with age-related concerns, particularly mm -hmm. Wainwright, but to a lesser extent, even Miles Michaelis and that kind of thing. And there's injury concerns. Uh, Flaherty, Stephen Matz, those guys have pretty substantial injury histories, and it's just hard to imagine that both of them are going to be able to be rotation anchors for the full season. They did nothing to address that, and I think it's probably going to come back to haunt them. It's always about depth. I know we talk about this quite a bit here down in Atlanta because the rotation is going to be tested, and as the Braves will point out, and I'm sure the Cardinals can attest to, nobody's going to feel sorry for you because all 30 teams go through it at some time this year. So whether you don't have the pitchers that you want to have, they're not pitching up to the capability that you want them to, you're going to have to find ways to adjust and move through that. Uh, in the bullpen, do you feel like there's been enough depth behind that rotation to kind of help pick up some of the pieces? Or do you feel like that's another place that as the season wears on, maybe the Cardinals will be looking for a little bit more help to fortify that group if they can't make some kind of wholesale change with their rotation to help them get back into the, I'm sure, the wild card picture, if nothing else? Yeah, I think the bullpen's okay right now. Uh, there's been some underperformances there, but I think uh, Helsley and Jordan Hicks are kind of finding their levels lately, and that's important because those are you know two critical right-handed arms out of that bullpen. I think what's Jake Woodford and Packy Naughton get healthy, that's a little more depth there. So I think the bullpen is not a glaring area of concern right now. Every contender can use another bullpen arm at some point, especially leading up to the deadline, and it wouldn't surprise me to see them add something, but... The rotation, to me, is a far bigger concern for the Cardinals. Adding pitching depth with a rotation or bullpen is what every contender is going to be out there doing. So the lines will be long, and we'll see what the Cardinals are able to pull off. And also, what do they look like by the time July rolls around? How much progress can they have made, both turning their record around and what's the NL Central going to look like? Because I do think that that whole divisional race 
is still kind of wide open, and nobody's really staked yep. that claim to it as of yet. We're chatting with Dane Perry of CBS Sports here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. He joins me on the wadeford.com hotline. A couple of more questions for you because I know when you have a situation like the Contreras one where I'm sure the front office, as you mentioned, did not handle it the way that you wanted it to, but at some point your manager is kind of the guy that's supposed to get all 26 men going in the same direction Oliver Mormal is the youngest manager in the major leagues, and that's always a talking point of some sort for various reasons. How do you feel like he has handled some of the challenges that's been thrown at him and his team throughout the course of the season so far? I was really impressed by Marmol's work last year. I thought he was very strong tactically and ran a smooth ship. A little of that shine has come off this season. You know, five games into the season, he publicly called out Tyler O'Neill for yep. an apparent lack of hustle. I'm not sure that needed to be aired out publicly. I don't think that was a great move by him. But I also think he was kind of given a flawed roster, particularly when that, you know, before the injuries and Walker's demotion happened, a really unworkable outfield situation, just too many guys in the mix there. And, of course, as we've talked about, the rotation is highly flawed. He was hired to replace Mike Schilt in part because he was in line with the front office's thinking and was willing to take some suggestions or marching orders, if you will. Mm-hmm. And he's had to wear it publicly for some of the front office's decisions. And I think he's done that without complaint. And that's sort of what he was hired for. And uh, I'm not sure about some of his decisions. He seems to have a quick trigger type of temper every now and then. But, you know, I think overall he's done solid considering what he's been confronted with this season. Yeah, there have been some challenges. You mentioned the pitching staff. Uh, Clearly there's some injuries that come along with things. And then some of the other situations we've talked about. You brought up Jordan Walker. I'd kind of forgotten just because of how much, I guess, change there has been for this Cardinals club. But this is somebody who had some serious hype coming out of spring training. Clearly, the story is not completely written for him, but it did seem like he was back in the minors a lot quicker than people would have imagined. And what do you feel like was the impetus for that? And what does Jordan Walker need to show them there that he couldn't do kind of on the job at the big league level? Honestly, I think the prime mover for that decision was how crowded the outfield situation was. And it was a bottleneck. And, you know, Walker's numbers had been declining from his hot start to the season, and he was losing playing time. And the Cardinals, I think, understandably wanted him to get regular reps. He also needs to elevate the ball better, and he's been working hard on that in the minors since he's been returned to AAA. And, uh, you know, he just hits the ball too often on the ground to take advantage of how hard he hits the ball and his power potential and that kind of thing. And he showed some progress uh, in that regard very recently. So I think – I was kind of frustrated by the decision at first because I don't really like yanking around high potential prospects like him. I think Mm -hmm. you just need to put them out there and let them figure it out. But I do get the thinking considering, you know, a bit of the underlying flaw to his swing that needed to be addressed for him to get to the superstar level. And I think that's probably on course. So I think it was a mix of those two motivations. Some big time power and obviously big time potential still there in the tank. He's just looking to get this story started and get it going the way that he wants to. Meanwhile, on the other end, and I want to kind of, I guess, bookend it with this. There's a guy who's very familiar to Braves fans because he was once a Braves farmhand, was traded to the Cardinals where he has enjoyed a very good career. That, of course, is Adam Wainwright. He was on the list of injured pitchers that the Cardinals have had to deal with this year. I know with Albert Pujols getting to come home and have his farewell tour in St. Louis, obviously with Molina stepping aside, it kind of leaves Wainwright as that that pillar or that last vestige of some really great years of Cardinals baseball. Uh, What do you feel like the future is for Adam Wainwright, or is he still kind of in a year-to-year process of deciding how long he may go on? I'd be surprised if he pitches beyond this season. You know, he's at that age. He's a devoted family guy and that kind of thing. You know, this season, the results aren't what he wants. 
you know, considering what's all going on with this team, all the drama and hysterics and that sort of thing, just his stabilizing influence, I think, is very valuable, uh, not only for the clubhouse, but the pitching staff in particular. You know, he's always seen chatting up the young guys after they come out of the game, you know, after pitching, whether they've done good or bad. I just think his influence and that steady personality and is really needed on this club right now, which goes far beyond what he does on the mound. And although, again, that rotation unaddressed, he's important for this rotation, even in his 40s. And you know, the Cardinals need innings and, and runs off the board when he's on the mound. He's more important than he should be in terms of the rotation, but he is important to them. No doubt about it. Kind of the elder statesman of that group, most certainly, and going to be an important arm as the Cardinals look to climb out of what was a less than ideal start, I think, to put it lightly, to the 2023 season. But as we like to say, a lot of baseball left to be played. He's Dane Perry of CBS Sports. He also has a subscription newsletter, Birdie Work, which covers the St. Louis Cardinals. I encourage you to check that out. You can also follow him on Twitter, at Dane Perry. Appreciate all of your time and your insights on the St. Louis Cardinals, and look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thanks for having me, man. Well, that's a look at what's been going on with the St. Louis Cardinals. When we come back, we will turn our attention back to what's to come for the Atlanta Braves in the week ahead as they're on their longest homestand of the year. And we'll do that next right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Back to more From the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back in to From the Diamond. Grant McCauley with you as we wrap up this edition of the show. Covered a lot of ground talking about everything Going on with the Atlanta Braves, who closed out their weekend by taking two out of three against the Seattle Mariners. They'll continue their homestand. We'll talk a little bit more about the next team in the Los Angeles Dodgers. And, of course, the Phillies are hot on their heels, as it will be a 10-game homestand by the time all is said and done for the Braves, who, again, won that series against the Mariners over the weekend, and that is a good way to start it. Now it's time to take a look ahead to what is going on for the Atlanta Braves as they continue what is a very important homestand with the win over the Mariners to start it but a first-place Dodgers club and a resurgent Phillies club that is certainly better with Bryce Harper than without. I don't know that we should or could go an entire show without really spending some time on the play of Ronald Acuna Jr. Because it seems like just about every day, this guy has a chance to do something that you haven't seen before or just add to a historic pace, and that's exactly what he has done so far in this season as he has been flirting with history on what feels like a nightly basis. The National League's Player of the Month for April may just be having a better month of May, which is crazy to think about considering how well he started out the season. And this week, after a home run binge, he finally reached the 40-40 pace. Now, he fell off of that by not homering for a couple of days. Go figure. But he's still on pace for 39 home runs. And what else? Is Ronald Acuna Jr. on pace? Well, I'm glad you asked. 218 hits, 46 doubles, 95 runs knocked in, 155 runs scored, and 63 stolen bases. There has not been a player that has put together a season with all of those things across the board. And I went through after game 43 and tried to tabulate if Ronald was able to finish with 200 hits, 40 doubles, 40 homers, 100 runs knocked in, and 150 runs scored. He would be the first man to do that since Chuck Klein in 1930. And the only other man who did it was Babe Ruth in 1921 and 1923. So if you're on a list with Babe Ruth and you're doing something that hasn't been done in close to a century or at least 90 years, you're probably making a pretty good case for National League MVP if you're Ronald Acuna Jr., and I would say that he is. Here in the month of May, as I mentioned, he may be having a better month than he was in April. His OPS is up just a little bit over that. He's batting three he He's got seven home runs, had four in May. 13 runs knocked in, 21 more runs scored as he scored one on Sunday as well, and five stolen bases as he's currently on his 11-game hitting streak. 
just an all-around tour de force in the first inning. He's batting over 500 with another base hit and another run scored in the first on Sunday against the Mariners. It just feels like clockwork with this guy. He's just able to do things that really nobody else is able to do. It's just a special player, and we are all witness, as the old saying goes, at 25 years old, I think there was some concern, some worry, some doubt perhaps that Ronald Acuna would look like the player he was from before the knee injury in 2021, but I think he has dispelled all doubt that he can be that player and then some. It's just been absolutely the most fun to watch, and we have about 116 more games to watch what Ronald Acuna Jr. can do. Now, the continued resurgence of Marcelo Zuna has also been another good thing for the Braves lineup as he is Eight-game hitting streak for Marcel. He's been on base for 15 consecutive games. And if you saw how the year started for Marcel Ozuna, you're thinking 15 consecutive games on base for this guy? I mean, this I was thinking today when he got his base hit to extend both his hitting streak and his on-base streak. I mean, it's almost like the comedic timing of Pedro Serrano wanting to sacrifice a live chicken to get some extra power for the playoffs in Major League. It's like, what did Marcel Ozuna do in order to turn himself from basically what amounted to pitcher's production coming from your DH spot to being the hitter that looks a lot like he did back in 2020. Because he was batting 085 when the month of April came to a close. He was 5 for 59. When I tell you it was pitcher's production, that's basically what you could have expected if you had the pitcher batting ninth these days. A couple of solo home runs, those were his only runs batted in as well. Eight walks, 18 strikeouts, 397 OPS. Not great. In the month of May, he has been a completely different hitter. 333, six home runs, 15 runs knocked in, and his 14 games played, seven walks and 12 strikeouts. And OPS just short of Ronald Lacuna Jr., who I mentioned was at 1098. Ozuna's at 1095 on the OPS to start this month. And a great turn of events for the Braves because when you consider, it's hard to get all nine guys in the lineup going at the same time. And I know that one guy that we've been talking about quite a bit this year has been Austin Riley. What's been going on with him? What's the difference in Austin? How exactly has he gone from being a guy that you expect to hit third or fourth in your lineup and provide 35, 40 home run power to being someone who's really struggling to lift the ball? Because that seems to have been one of his big challenges this year. It's his age 26 season, so it's not like all of a sudden overnight he just got older. It doesn't look altogether that different at the plate in terms of how he's set up. But the results look very different. The approach looks a little bit different. So I figured there was only one place to go if you want to get the inside on what's going on at the plate for Austin Riley. So I went to the man himself. This is my conversation with Austin Riley from Friday at Truist Park. A challenging road trip for you guys. Obviously, things didn't go the way you wanted to in Toronto, but it seemed like the club started to bounce back a little bit in Texas. Is that some momentum that you can carry into the longest homestand of the year? Yeah, I mean, obviously the Toronto series, we turned the page quick on that one. Yeah. You know, as simple as it, as it is that. Uh, and then, you know, built some momentum in Texas, put some good at-bats up, and, and, you know, fought to the end and was able to take a series. And anytime you take a series on a first-place team, that's something that you can build on. Uh, and looking forward to, to, to doing that. Like you said, uh, the longest homestand uh, of the season, and, and hopefully it's a good one. I know baseball is kind of a long game. There are ups and downs, adjustments to be made on an almost daily basis, right. I would imagine. For you this year, what has kind of been the challenge, and what are you looking to work through right now to kind of get back to where you want to be at the plate? You know, I think it's it's trusting my ability, trusting my plan, my approach. I felt like uh, here in the last month, I've kind of gotten away from that, um, doing a little bit too much searching versus just trusting my cage routine. 
I also feel like I'm getting pitched a little bit different than what I'm used to. Uh, I feel like it's it's more of anything, anytime. There's no type of sequence to anything. So just trying to learn that. It's, it's the game of adjustments. The pitchers are making adjustments. i got to make adjustments to them. Uh, I feel like I'm, you know, the last week or so I'm starting to do that. And, uh, you know, hopefully we're on the, the outskirts of this thing. Now, I'm not a hitting coach. I don't play one on TV. I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. But when it comes to something like launch angle and a difference from maybe year to year, is there anything in particular that you can adjust that helps you kind of get back to lifting and driving the ball the way that you want to? So... The biggest thing was I was diving towards the plate. When I was diving towards the plate, it was either a big push, which created a lot of jams on the, the fastball, or I was pulling out of everything, and it was just a rollover. Never grounded out into this many double plays, and you know, obviously the, the launch angle hadn't been there. So that's two areas that are new to me. So it's, like I said, I think the biggest adjustment that I've – having to make and like I said the last week has been a lot better of just like when I'm loading loading more with my like my hands and not getting my body into it and like I said when I was turning in it was either a push I was having to come out of it to get some clearance to work and I think that just tied me up so I think we've caught the bug it's just a matter of getting it more consistent now Um, so yeah yeah, as I've talked to you over the years, going all the way back to the Rome days, I mean, the hard work, the adjustments, all of those things have been there all along. You've also credited some people that have helped you through that process. I mean, the hard work belongs to you, but some of the help from the outside. Is there anybody or any bodies, plural, that have kind of been helping you work the problem a little bit more this year? You know, just the normal Kevin Seitzer and Mags have been there for me. Um, you know, obviously, my I've been talking a lot to my offseason hitting coach, Mike Brumley. We talk all the time, um, and, you know, it's Everybody's kind of seemed to point to that same thing. It was just like that body turn in. And like I said, we're, we're on to something. It's just a matter of getting it more consistent now. Um, but, yeah, those guys have been, you know, all hands on deck. I think it was Frenchie that said on the broadcast, like, even when you start to recognize some things, it does take a little while to get those adjustments to correlate in game. But yeah. it does feel like, especially hitting the home run in Texas, a lot more lift to the ball of right. late. It does seem like, you said, you may be turning the corner. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely think we've caught the bug on it. Um, and, and like you said, it's like I've obviously created a bad habit and not knowing it. So it's like one of those things that, it's tough to think about something and then try to hit 97. Yeah. Um, so it's one of those things where I have to do my cage work and trust it to go out there. And like I said, it's, you know, I may take four swings at bat. Two of them may be what I want and two of them may be back to dive. So it's like, it's just building that muscle memory of trying to break that habit. Yeah. And you being an everyday guy, taking a lot of pride in being out there each and every day. I know a lot of people are like, oh, maybe you need a day off, do this, do that, change where you are in the batting order. Does any of that stuff ever cross your mind? Or is this more of a every day is its own opportunity and I'm going to continue to work my way through? Yeah, no, I, I want to be in there every day. You know, it's just a you're one swing away from you know going off and the more bats I can get the quicker I'm going to figure it out and and the more I'm going to be able to help this team so I want to be in there every day like I said now that we've found I think we found the the bug it's just more of like I, I need more reps of you know being cautious of it it'll eventually you know get to where I want to be that's Braves third baseman Austin Riley my conversation with him on Friday as the Braves and Mariners got this series started and he has started to pick up base hits with a little bit more regularity, but the power is what I know everybody, including Austin himself, wants to be able to tap into. And I thought it was just really interesting to hear you know, how do you work through it. And I know a lot of people kind of wonder, well, who helps you work through this? Because And we don't crowdsource the answers for major league players on Twitter to let them know how to improve their game. But everybody seemed to think, well, we just have them talk to Chipper Jones. 
Okay, well, Chipper Jones can tell you a certain thing. He can give you things to keep in mind, but Chipper Jones can't just fix your swing for you, you know, through osmosis. It just doesn't work that way. I mean, Ted Williams was a manager in the big leagues in the late 60s, early 70s, and I'm sure a lot of people asked Ted Williams a lot about hitting over that period of time, but Ted wasn't able to turn all those guys into 400 hitters either. So it's just one of those things that I think as much as you can get the consistency and the continuity and the approach like he was talking about, yeah, you can work with people, you can get that feedback, but then it's about putting those adjustments into practice and getting the reps. So I think he can continue to hit his way out of it, whether or not that's batting third or fourth in the order. I don't know if that makes a really big difference. Would they move him down any further than that? It remains to be seen, but I do feel like there have been some swings of late that have made you feel like maybe he's really started to locate, as he called it, the bug that was going on and go ahead and reprogram that thing, get himself back to where he wants to be. One other hitter who's been struggling quite a bit here in the early going is Michael Harris II, and I've talked about him last week, and it's just worth pointing out. This is somebody who did miss three weeks worth of the season due to the back injury. He was wearing that knee brace. He's finally shed that over the weekend, so that's a good thing to see. But a couple of things that I've noticed about his approach overall, I know that the power hasn't been there, the extra base hit ability hasn't been there yet, but he has doubled his walk rate from a year ago, which is nothing but a good thing because I think that was the one thing that you wanted to add to his offensive repertoire, if you will. And he's also cut his strikeout rate slightly from last year as well, but a lot of contact on the ground. There's still a little bit of road to travel here to get himself back and maybe get himself hot, get a little hitting streak going and start feeling like himself again at the plate after having a start stop to his season. But out in the outfield, Michael Harris II has looked an awful lot like Michael Harris II, who looks an awful lot like a gold glove candidate. So those are some things going on for the Atlanta Braves in the bigger picture. A couple of minor notes before we get out of here. Charlie Culberson back with the club. So congrats to him for getting the call back to the big leagues. He, of course, played with Atlanta from 2018 through 2020. Spent a couple of years in Texas, was with Tampa Bay in spring, and signed a minor league deal back in late March to rejoin Atlanta. Braden Shoemake's going to go back down, play every day in Gwinnett, which I think is good for him. And with the DH now, you just don't really have to make as many moves. You don't need to pinch hitter as bad. And Charlie can kind of play all over the place. So kind of nice to have him back, kind of a utility knife. Ara Adrianza on the 60-day IL now as he is dealing with a shoulder strain, so he's going to be out for a while. We'll see how the Braves address the utility man spot in the coming weeks and months throughout the course of the rest of the season. But that'll wrap things up here for this edition of From the Diamond. As always, I appreciate Dom, my producer, for helping me get through another great show. Hope you out there have enjoyed it. And make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcast. You can search for From the Diamond, find it there, or the Odyssey app. Look forward to bringing you more Braves and baseball talk here next Sunday on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Until then, I'm Grant McCauley. This has been From the Diamond, and we'll catch you next time, everyone. So long.